right, everybody. Uh, welcome once again, and want to invite you to turn to John 21 in your Bible. If you have one, if not, uh, there's one under the seats in front of you, or the words will be on the screen. We are just so glad you're here with us at FBC. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and just want to welcome you. And here again, our aim is to help people worship, connect, grow, and go. And so I know a lot's happening this fall, but just another pastoral encouragement. want to uh, invite you to take a next step this fall fall, whether that next step is, is connecting in a community group. You can find out more after the service, connecting in Rooted, a uh, chance to grow there, whether it's a baptism after the service, we're going to talk about baptism. We just want to invite you to consider what following Jesus might look like in your life beyond Sunday morning. So uh, just, that's my pastoral encouragement. And with that, John 21, we uh, are, this is it, people. This is the last chapter. We're at the end. There's 21 chapters in the book of John, and here we are starting chapter 21. We've, we've almost made it. Um, and we've titled our, our kind of mini-series here at the end of the Gospel of John, Now What? Because that's naturally the question that these first followers of Jesus were asking. They've seen him alive after the resurrection, and they're wondering, now what? What do we do? What does this mean for us? And what does this mean for the world? Where do we go from here? Because even though the gospel is ending here in chapter 21, uh, the, the movement of Jesus really is just beginning and is exploding onto the scene throughout history. And so we're going to look at, man, what do these disciples do next? Uh, and what does this mean for the church, right? This so naturally flows into our upcoming study of the church. What does it mean to be the church, to be the people of God and followers of Jesus? in our day and age. So really excited to kind of springboard into that in just a few weeks after uh, John. But this morning, there's some real gems here at the end of John, you guys. I'm really looking forward to jumping in. We, we have a resurrection appearance of Jesus here this morning. You heard it read aloud. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 21, uh, 21 tells us this is Jesus again appearing to his disciples after his resurrection. And if you skip down to verse uh, 14, you'll see it mentioned again. This is how Jesus, again, appeared to his disciples for the third time, it tells us. And so we kind of have these bookends of our section. Verse 1, verse 14, this resurrection appearance of Jesus. And it's helpful that the text reminds us that this happened multiple times for the skeptics among us or that's all of us probably at some point, the skeptical part of our hearts said, did they really see Jesus alive? Like if it just happened once, you know, maybe they just, you know, had some bad pizza the night before or ate the wrong kind of mushrooms and they're like, we saw Jesus! And it didn't really happen. But here the text reminds us, hey, this happened multiple times. In history, there were multiple appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. This wasn't just something, a hallucination, a fluke, something we can easily explain away. He appears multiple times to multiple people, all confirming, interacting with him that Jesus is in fact alive. And this particular appearance here in John 21 revolves around a fishing trip. You saw it again. Look at the text, verse one. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, or maybe your passage, or your t translation says the Sea of Tiberias, same thing. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. 
I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. So in the context here, the disciples have left Jerusalem, right? They were in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. That's when Jesus was arrested and crucified. And they saw him uh, for the first time, the empty tomb, right? And his resurrection. And now they're uh, returned home to Galilee, where many of them were from. And we see Peter's there. And the sons of Zebedee were there. That's James and John. And we see Nathaniel there. And, and two others in verse 2, which as a side note, I just think is kind of funny that John, the author, doesn't name them. You know, he like goes to the trouble to name all the other ones. Like, hey, Peter was there and James and John were there. So I imagine those two who were there reading this are like, what do you, what? come on, John, what, why the snub? Right? Like they, they know they were there. And so they're reading this and they're like, well, you went to the trouble to mention Peter and, and James and Nathaniel. Why, why'd you leave us out? Like, did, Pete, did John get lazy? I don't know. He's like, I know Peter was there. I'm thinking about, I know John was there. And there were two others. I'm not going to bother to think about who they were. But um, I, I just think it's kind of funny. We don't know. We don't know why I left them out. But we got two unnamed disciples that were there as well for all the fun. And Peter takes initiative. Verse three, like usual, right? I'm going fishing. He's impulsive. He's often the first to act. And they say, we'll go with you in verse three. So they go out on the boat. Now, remember, before Jesus called Peter to follow him, he was a fisherman. And James and John were his fishing partners. We know that. This was their trade. And so they're, they're doing something that they know how to do, that they've done before. And so because of that, sometimes people will look at this and interpret it quite negatively. They'll say, well, look at Peter and the boys. They're going out fishing. They're just returning to their old life. They're forgetting the, the, the commission of Jesus to go out and make disciples and how he's just sent them out with his spirit, right? I am sending you. And so some will look at this and say, this is just apostasy. They're, they're walking away. They're abandoning the mission. Or some will say maybe more gently, well, it's maybe not that harsh, but they're at least kind of adrift and they're a little aimless and they, they don't quite know what to do next. They're without direction. Some of us read it that way. Maybe you read it that way. I, I don't think the text, just for its worth, I don't think the text requires us to interpret it that way. I don't think the text tells us necessarily that this is sinful what they're doing. This is abandoning Jesus. I think we could read it instead charitably and say, well, they were obedient to return to Galilee where he said he would meet them. They're waiting for him. And in this kind of in between time, between his resurrection and his ascension, with these appearances happening, they're kind of waiting for the next thing. And so while they're doing that, is it a bad thing to fish and make some money and make some money to eat, buy food, eat the fish yourself? I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that they're going fishing. So for what it's worth. And uh, so they go out on the boat and everyone has a fishing story, right? Do you have a fishing story? Can we share a fishing story after the service with, with some of your friends? Share it with me. I'd love to hear it from me. My uh, what comes to mind for me was fishing with my cousins and grandparents back uh, in Michigan growing up. So in the summer, my parents are from Michigan, so we would go back to see my grandparents in the summer when we were school age, and uh, we'd go fishing. On, um, it was on Lake Huron in a place called Caseville. My, parents, or my grandparents had a cottage. It was in this part in Michigan, if you know the, the, thumb, the hand thing for Michigan, right? So that's where we were, and uh, me and my cousins, we'd go fishing right off the dock, and we'd catch perch. Anyone ever had perch? We'd bring them in, and Grandma would cut them up and 
fry them up in butter and have a great little snack. That's my earliest memory of fishing. You probably have a story. Maybe your story is a little more dangerous than mine. I don't know. Everyone has a fishing story. And, and so these disciples go fishing. But this particular fishing trip in the text, it doesn't go very well, does it? Right, verse 3. I'm going out to fish. Simon Peter told them. They said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got in the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Now, fishing at night was common, but not catching anything was rather uncommon. Especially for, I mean, seasoned, veteran, experienced fishermen, right? This wasn't like their first time out. They, they knew what they were doing, and they aren't catching anything. So that, as we're reading it, right, strikes us as a little odd. That's the, we should notice that. And also, we probably can assume that they're rather discouraged. They're exhausted, probably. They've been fishing all night. And this sort of fishing is not like our kind of casual, relaxing fishing with the buddies, right? I'm going to go throw a line in and, you know, have a snack and chat it up with my friends and have a drink and just sit here and enjoy the day fishing, right? No, this, this is work, okay? They're fishing with nets, heavy nets, throwing them in the water, dragging, pulling them up out of the water all night, catching nothing. They're tired, Right? They're there to work, not have fun, and it's not going well. And then Jesus shows up. Okay? Verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So like other appearances, you notice they didn't right away recognize Jesus. We saw that with Mary earlier. Doesn't recognize Jesus at first. But it's him. And he says, hey, haven't, haven't you caught anything? Like, no. And he says, well, okay, throw, throw your net in again. He calls them to try once more. Which is, again, unusual because they've been fishing all night. You know, in their minds, they're probably like, what are the odds of us catching something now? been hours of unfruitful fishing. And here this guy on the shore says to try again. But they say, okay. And they, they do what Jesus says, which is a pretty good principle when you're coming to the text, right? If you know nothing else about the Bible, uh, that's a good place to start. Do what Jesus says. That's a good, that's a good impulse, good place to start. He, he knows what he's talking about, okay? And so they do what he says. Even though they're not entirely sure it's him, we're, we know it's him, and they do it, and he knows what he's talking about. Verse 6, when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. So first we see in the text, we see just the incredible provision of Jesus. Jesus, the provider. We see this miraculous catch. I mean, picture it. The net is so full, they can barely, they can't even pull it into the boat. There's fish flopping everywhere. It's probably smelly. One probably smacked one of the guys in the face. There's fish coming out of their ears. Jesus abundantly provides for his disciples. He abundantly delivers what they have been seeking. We don't know how he did it. You know, he's, he's Jesus, so he had a way. I don't know if he signaled the fish, like, hold, hold. Now! I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And the, the net, they can't even carry it in because of how full is. We see his power on display. Right? Jesus works miracles left and right. We know this and we see it once again and we stand back in awe and say, wow, who is like this Jesus? But like so many events in the Gospel of John, especially in symbols and images that we see throughout the book, there are layers here, right? 
It's about fish, but it's about more than fish. Right? We know that. It's about fish, and that's special and spectacular what we see happen, but there's, there's more going on here that we need to reflect on. It's telling us something about Jesus. And so as always, when we're reading the Bible, in order to make sense of it, we want to read it in context, right? We think about it, uh, what came before this passage, what comes after it, where is this, you know, the, where are these events situated in the narrative? We don't just um, isolate and read a text in isolation. We don't just helicopter into a passage, you know, and then try and make sense of it without its context. And so we have to think with this passage as well, uh, there's a certain place this holds in the unfolding story. And so what does that tell us about how to interpret it? Well, what just happened? Right, Jesus rose from the dead. They found the empty tomb. And then he sends his disciples. He commissions them in verse 21 of chapter 20. Remember? Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, he tells them. After his resurrection, he tells his disciples, I'm sending you out. There is a mission ahead. And so the context of this miraculous catch is the mission ahead for the disciples, for the church, that they're called to take the whole gospel to the whole world. They're sent out. And so we say, okay, that's cool. But what does that have to do with fishing? Well, a couple of things. Think about it. earlier in John chapter 15. Do you remember when we read about uh, the vine and the branches? Jesus is teaching and he uses that illustration to help the disciples understand the Christian life, walking with him. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And in order to, to bear fruit, you have to remain in me. You have to abide in me. You have to stay connected to me. Right? And so your, uh, the transformation of your heart and your impact and influence in the world is directly dependent upon your staying connected to Jesus, right? We depend upon his power, his life flowing through us. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, and then we read in verse three here that they in fact caught nothing. And then Jesus shows up and there's abundance. So I think it reminds us of the power of Jesus, Reminds them in the context of mission, there's a mission ahead. Church, we are sent out to go and, and make disciples and invite men and women in the Bay Area and everywhere to come and follow Jesus. We're called to love our neighbors and serve our neighbors in Jesus' name, to bless our community in the name of Jesus. And so if we're sent out with a mission, right, to glorify God, to be fishers of men, you could say, we can't think for a second that we can do it on our own. All right, this is a vivid reminder that they will fail. We will fail if Jesus is not with us. If we are not dependent upon the power of Jesus. And I think sometimes we forget that. That we can do nothing apart from him. I think sometimes I forget that. Sometimes I try and just run ahead. Sometimes when things are hard, I kind of put my head down and just push through rather than kneeling in prayer and coming before the Lord. Confessions of a pastor. 
right? Sometimes it's just, hey, we got to figure this out. Let's just work hard, dig in, put your head down. Yeah, we're exhausted. Let's just keep going. Rather than coming in humility before the Lord, realizing it, it, it has to be him. It has to be him and his power and his spirit to bring about change and transformation and growth and whatever it is that we are pursuing. Amen. 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 It has to be him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, so we have to rely on him and his power. This shows us this. But also, notice a key detail. We have to do what he says. Right? He tells them, throw your net in again. And they could have said, no. We've been doing this all night, stranger, on the beach. We don't want to. But they do it. And that's where there is the abundance, the catch, the impact, right? Right, and so is the Lord maybe inviting you to take a step of obedience that doesn't make sense to you on the surface? You've never been there? The Lord invites you to take a step of faith, a, a commitment, a step of obedience that doesn't add up right away. The math on it, like humanly speaking, with our own logic or maybe worldly lenses on, it doesn't necessarily make sense. Lord says, I want you to trust me and I want you to do it. And then you'll see later the life that is found there. I think we need to consider what does this look like for me, Lord? What's the step you're calling me to? Right? Calling to us to live a generous life. We know the scriptures are clear about us giving generously, about stewarding what we have for not, not just for ourselves, but for the good of others. And yet sometimes that, the math there doesn't add up, Right? <laughs> It's not always easy to, to give generously. We're like, I'm looking at my spreadsheet, Lord, and I'm not sure how the month is going to work if I'm doing what you tell me to do, to give generously to the church, to the poor, to those in need. I don't know if I can live generously. And he says, trust me. Maybe we're thinking about coming to church on Sunday. Like, you're just being here at church uh, in, a, in a worldly perspective. We say, why would you do that? Like, every week? What? Why, why are you here? Right there? Do you know there's a lot of other things you could be doing? There's a lot of other ways you could be out spending your time. Maybe your friends look at you like, why are you wasting your time? Why are you going to, I mean, go like once, once a quarter, maybe, right? That still counts. That'll take, just, that's fine. Like, why would you go so often? You know, in, in the worldly perspective, it doesn't make sense. There are better ways to spend your time. There are better ways to spend your money, maybe people will say. Getting, getting involved in a community group? You're telling me you're going to take a night of your week, every week, to go hang out with people that you might not even like. What are you, why would you do that? And yet the Lord calls us to community, right? To life together, to, to encouragement, to growth. Calls us to serve, to give of our time. Calls us to open up our home to the lonely and the stranger. To, to love people maybe who are difficult to love. It might not make sense on the surface. Yet he calls us to obedience, to trust him as we act. So we see how they respond, verse seven. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. So Jesus tells them to throw their net in. They do. Miraculous catch of fish. Amazing. 
they realize it's Jesus. John characteristically responds. Often John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author of this gospel, is quick to discern, understand, to see what is actually there. And Peter responds characteristically for him by being impulsive and jumping in and leaving the rest of them to deal with the fish, right? And he jumps in. He just goes for it. Now, it's key here that we stop for a second and and think about this reaction. Because as we were reading this, maybe you remember a similar event in the Bible that looks a lot like this story. See, back when Peter was first called to follow Jesus, he went fishing at night with James and John. So here we are a few years later at the end, you could say, of the gospel. But back in the beginning, actually it's recorded in Luke chapter 5, Peter and some of his buddies go fishing at night. And the stories are very similar. If you go read Luke 5 and then you read this passage, because both of them have Peter and James and John fishing at night. And both of the stories have them catching nothing. And in both of the stories, Jesus shows up. And in both of the stories, Jesus says, hey, throw your net in again. And in both of the stories, they do. And in both of the stories, they have a miraculous catch of fish. Again, these events are separated by a few years. So similar. And yet there's one main difference. In Luke chapter 5, at the beginning, when Peter's really just first getting to know Jesus, his response, do you remember how he responds there? He says, depart from me. He says, I am a sinful man. And so he has this sense of the holiness and the power and the divinity of Jesus and saying, I can't be in your presence. I'm seeing who you are and I know who I am. And so this this isn't going to work. I need to get away from you. Which isn't necessarily an improper response, right? When we stand before the holiness of God and we see our sinfulness, there is this reality of the Lord. Uh, we see this um, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter six, right? When we stand in the presence of God, there's fear because he is holy and we are not. And so it's not necessarily an improper response, but it's noteworthy that his response is so different here. In every way, the story looks the same, except his response now is what? I'm gonna jump into the water and swim to Jesus and get as close to him as I can as fast as I can. Why the change? And it's noteworthy too, because remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how you're not gonna read through the gospels and find a lot of people running or hustling or hurrying, right? Because in the ancient world, in that culture, that was a sign of, you didn't have your affairs in order. So if you were running somewhere, it was like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing, right? His life is chaotic. He's not very put together. It was not respectable. So running, hurrying, was not common, wasn't dignified. And Peter here not only like runs, moves quickly, but he's actually, he's swimming, right? He's jumping in the water to get to Jesus as fast as he can. And we're going to see more to come with Peter and what happens in a little bit when Jesus reinstates him after, right? He's denied Jesus. But I think for here, uh, for now, it's enough simply to notice such a different response. It's enough to notice how eager he is to get close to Jesus. And perhaps from that first meeting in Luke chapter five until now, he's maybe spent enough time with Jesus to know how he would be received after his failure. No, no, think about it some more. So they make it to the beach. Verse nine, 
When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Verse 13, Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Now I got to confess, when I was prepping for this week and I read this text knowing it was coming up, I was kind of like, Lord, I don't know what you want me to do with this. <laughs> or do you read this? You're like, what, what do we make of this here? You've heard of the last supper, but here we have the last breakfast. <laughs> and I love verse, I've, I've grown to love this text so much as I've soaked in it this week. Because he, he, he tells us, I was come and have breakfast. They reach the shore. Jesus is there with a grill ready, okay? Fish is cooking. There's bread. And it, it's such an interesting scene because this is the sort of, like, it, it didn't have to be there, you know? Like, John didn't have to include this. God didn't have to have this as part of the Bible. If, if we lose this passage, I mean, I, I, we don't lose, like, a key doctrine that, that has to be there. And so it's kind of like, Lord, what are you doing here? Why, why are you showing us this, this event, I mean, I mean, previously, like, okay, the, the empty tomb, like, that's got to be in there. Like, that, we, we got to know about that one. And, and then he even, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And, and he talks about the, giving them the Holy Spirit. And so they're, they're sent out, empowered by the Spirit for the mission. Like, okay, that's pretty important. That's got to be there. And then skip ahead, and he, like, reinstates Peter coming up. And, you know, he's like, I love my, you know, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Do you love me? All that, that whole interaction. And uh, we're like, that's pretty important. That's got to be there. And, and, but this, you know what? They're just having breakfast. There's frustratingly no real imperatives clearly on the surface here for us, right? What do we do with this? Sometimes the text is really clear. Like you read through the Bible and it gives you like the answer, like here's what you should do with this. Like 10 commandments, hey, don't murder. Like you're not left like, what does it mean? <laughs> Lord, I don't know what to do, you know? It's like don't kill people, okay? So, um, but then there are other times where you're like, okay, Lord, how, reading the story, how do we make sense of this? What does this mean for us? Jesus and the disciples having a fish fry on the beach after a long night of fishing. <clears throat> I think there are a few things it tells us. Um, if we saw Jesus as the provider before with the miraculous catch, I think here we are seeing Jesus displayed as this gracious host. A gracious host. Look again at verse 9 and 13. It says, When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And then verse 13, Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. So, again, the disciples arrive on the beach to a banquet, a table already prepared for them by Jesus. Right? Grill's already going. Fish are cooking. Verse 9 shows us he's already on it. He's prepared the meal. Also, in the ancient world, it was the, the head of the banquet or the host who would be responsible for, for passing out 
the bread, specifically. So verse 13 tells us he does exactly that. He passes out the bread and the fish to his disciples. And the text doesn't tell us, but there's probably a French press with some dark roast coffee over on the side that he's pouring for them as well. It's not in the text, but I'm assuming it's there, okay? He serves the meal for them. So he prepares the meal, and as a gracious host, he serves the meal. And we have this little bit in verse 10 through 11 where he invites Peter to contribute to it. Like, hey, throw a few fish on from your catch. And Peter does that. And, you know, the text tells us there's 153 fish, which um, shows they counted it, right? Isn't that what you would do? This is an amazing catch. Like, how many are here? And they count them. There's 153. And some, it's interesting, you you could go, you spend a lot of time reading a lot of stuff from history about how theologians, and going back to Augustine, and who have, like, tried to make sense of, what does it mean, the 153? There are 153 fish. Like, why does it tell us that? What is, what's, what's the symbol? And there's all, seriously all these like really complex like algorithms and mathematic equations with numbers and letters that people are trying to make sense of like what it could mean. And uh, I, I think the answer is that there's a hundred, it tells us there's 153 fish there because that's how many fish were there. I think it's, it's really one of those things. I think it's that simple. And if there is some more symbolic meaning, it's so, it's very hidden. And so we, we don't know. Maybe we'll find out one day, but I really don't think there's a great answer other than, that's how many fish were there. They counted them. And so, so we see he's, he's this host serving his disciples, meeting their needs. I mean, something as simple as a, as a meal after a long night, a hot meal on the beach after a fairly frustrating night of fishing until the end. And I just love seeing the, the care that Jesus takes for his disciples. And don't, don't we see that in the heart of God over and over again in Scripture? This is what God does for his people. He feeds them. He meets their needs. He wants to care for them. He has a tender heart towards you and wants to care for you. I mean, think, think throughout the Scriptures. We look back even to this Gospel in John chapter 2, and there was a, a wedding that Jesus attended, and they ran out of wine, and Jesus found out about it. And you remember his response? He's like, I'm glad you ran out of wine. You shouldn't have been drinking it anyways. Just kidding. No, he's like, he turns water into wine, works his first public miracle, his first sign, so that the banquet, the feast may continue, the celebration, the joy may continue. Think back to John chapter six. Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000, 5,000 men plus women and children that were there as well. This massive group, this miracle, giving them bread and fish. He has compassion on them to meet their needs. And that situation points back to the book of Exodus, back in the Old Testament, where God fed his people in the wilderness, remember? With manna from heaven to sustain them, to feed them. Think about Psalm 23. Remember that line in Psalm 23? The Lord prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Preparing a table as a gracious host would, that we might be sustained When the lost son returns home in Luke 15, the father welcomes him in and says, he kisses him, right? Gives him a coat and a ring. Says, we're going to have a big party and kill the fattened calf. We're going to eat it and celebrate and feast, right? It shows us just this beautiful picture of the heart of God. I want to bless you. I want to take care of you. I'm for you. I want to encourage you. It's simple, and it's, I think it's a beautiful picture. 
And many of us today, don't we kind of share that impulse? I think we could trace this back, of course, to the very heart of God, but many of us share this impulse today. Like we know if you want to take care of people, if you want to show that you love someone, just feed them. All right? Isn't that what we do? Like I I might not be able to solve your problem, but I can make a mean casserole. And so, and we deliver it, right? I can't fix whatever the situation is you're in. I can't heal you quicker from your surgery, but I can bring you a pie. So here you go. It's a beautiful picture, right? We're simple people sometimes. That's, we don't need a lot. All right, how many of you have ever been in a problem or a really difficult situation, and it didn't seem quite so bad after you had a good meal, right? Like, well, maybe, maybe things aren't as bad as I thought. Guess we're right, right? This comes from the very heart of God. I want to care for you. I want to feed you. I want to sustain you. Verse 12, Jesus said to him, come and have breakfast. See the tender heart of God. And in this, we also see then a necessary pattern for us, living the Christian life. It's that first we must receive and rest and be with Jesus before we are sent out on mission with Jesus. Right? Not just talking about food now, but, but spiritual food and nourishment. Right? We cannot give what we do not have. We cannot draw from an empty well. We cannot pour out if our hearts are empty. And so we need to sit with Jesus and enjoy his presence and have his spirit fill us that we might then go out eventually to serve and encourage and love and give. But first it starts with, would you just come and be with me? He invites us to come and rest and experience his grace and mercy in the gospel that says, come and have all your sins forgiven because Jesus died on the cross for you. And come and be adopted and welcomed into the family of God because Jesus was cast out for you. And come and experience new life in Jesus because he died for you and then rose again. And his body, he tells us, is the bread of life given for us on that cross. Isn't that what we remember each time we take communion? So we desperately need this simple, simple time sitting with the Lord, being quiet before him. There's not a lot of chatter. There's eating breakfast. There's one more layer to this meal I think we need to see. Verse 9, it says, When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, we already talked about the fish fry that was happening. Uh, but it's interesting the way the text, is, the, the word that's used here, a fire of burning coals is there on the beach. It's a charcoal fire. It's interesting because there's only one other place in the New Testament where that word is used. Any guesses? One other place. Peter was there. Uh, it was a few chapters ago in chapter 18. Jesus was arrested and it was a cold night. And so those who arrested him were kind of outside warming themselves by the fire. And Peter was kind of following along and he approached the fire as well. And it was at that fire that a servant girl came up to him and said, hey, aren't you one of that guy's disciples? And Peter said no. And then he would go on to deny Jesus a few more times. And so we see then that this, this breakfast on the beach is redemptive. There's this theme of 
redemption here. We'll look at Peter more closely next week and being reinstated after denying Jesus. But we get a taste of it here that Jesus isn't done with Peter. Jesus isn't done with you. It's such a sweet picture that at the end of John, we see this, that, that rather than the story ending with Peter, you know, cast out or sitting around a fire with the enemies of Jesus, without Jesus there, instead we see him sitting around a fire with Jesus and his friends. I think that's beautiful. Right? What alternate, it's almost as if to remind Peter, hey, that first fire doesn't need to be the last one. And here around this fire is what really is going to define you. And so in the Gospel of John, we see such good news, friends, for doubters and deniers. We saw doubting Thomas last week. And Jesus gently comes to him and says, would you see and believe and stop doubting? He invites him. And now we see Peter, a denier, who said he didn't even know Jesus, now invited to, to sit at, at Jesus' uh, sandy table there on the beach and enjoy a hot meal and renew their relationship. The gospel is so beautiful. There's really nothing else like it. What love, what, what redemption, taking something that's lost and broken and restoring relationship. There's nothing like it because as, think about it this way, as truly, our culture will kind of, you know, in the world will label itself as um, maybe inclusive or maybe um, tolerant. And yet we know there's, there's real venom sometimes for those who misstep, those who fall out of line. There's wrath for dissenters that our culture will have. Like cancel culture is, is real, right? We've seen it where if you don't affirm, you know, this certain politically correct view or you don't maybe talk in the way that people think you should or you've got something in your past people are going to find out about and like dig it up and make it public and you're going to get canceled. And, and the impulse there is let's like find the unclean ones and cast them out and condemn them. And there's little talk of mercy or reconciliation or forgiveness. There's no theology of redemption in a worldly view like that. All right, if you're out, you're out, done, cast out, game over, moving on. But do you see how the gospel is so much better than that? How as the people of God, we have something so much more beautiful to offer the world? Redemption, new life, we can look back and say, hey, who, were, who you were doesn't have to be who you are. Jesus can transform us and give us a new life and a new identity and a new heart and a new place in his family. Jesus looks to doubters and deniers and he loves them and he invites them to have breakfast with him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you and we're so encouraged by your word and how you welcomed Peter and these disciples and you cared for them, you loved them, you invited them to sit with you and share a meal. It reminds us, of course, of um, another meal where you told the disciples about your broken body and shed blood for them and for us. It reminds us of another meal, the 
the wedding feast of the Lamb that we look forward to in eternity being with you forever. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the gospel and what you've done for us. And I just pray for anyone here this morning that maybe is doubting your love for them, is doubting that they can be forgiven or restored because of where they've been or who they've been or how they've strayed. Lord, would you right now overwhelm them with a sense of your love? We love you, Jesus, and we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.